Welcome to The Company We Keep, a show that highlights how women are taking unexpected paths, overcoming obstacles, and constantly curating the people, places, jobs, and things in their lives in order to design a life they love. I'm your host, Allie Bowes, and today's episode is all about Megan Ricks. She's a great friend of mine and go-to person for inspiration on how to defy norms and take the unexpected path. Two of her guiding questions along her journey have been, where am I playing it safe and how can I live with no regrets? This constant self-reflection has sparked many pivots throughout her college and adult years, from switching majors to making a last-minute decision to serve in Peace Corps in South Africa, to moving to New York to get her master's degree and start her adult life. She's sharing the pivots, bits of advice inspired by strong, powerful women, and her most cherished lessons from her South African community. So let's dive in. Megan Ricks, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, of course. I'm so glad that you reached out and that here we are. Yes, here we are. Well, I'm so excited for you to share your story. We've been friends since the beginning of college, and I've been really inspired by how you live life on your own timeline, jump out of your comfort zone, and you find this power and radical acceptance. Yeah. So take us back to the beginning of college. Mm -hmm. What was your major, and what did you envision as your career? Oh boy. So when I moved out to Indiana from California, I started an elementary education and I had every intention of being a fourth grade teacher, just at like a small town school in the middle of nowhere. That's what I wanted. Then it took me about a month of school to realize I hate math and <laughs> What I hate more than math is having to understand how to teach math. And there was a class I was taking at Purdue at the time, which we were given wrong answers from a child (laughs) and had to figure out why they got them wrong. And I was like, I don't know. It's just wrong. And so I've always been taken by education and social studies has always been my passion. So this was, it was a welcome surprise when I found out Purdue offered social studies education. So I promptly marched into my advisor's office and said, please, may I switch? And so then by the end of my first semester, of college, I was in social studies education, which was a secondary 6 through 12 program. You spent the majority of your college time in social studies education. Take us to the last like month of senior year of college. So kind of continuing on with what I had envisioned, I was going to be a high school history teacher, but my location kept changing. At one point I wanted to teach in Chicago and I was pretty close to applying for jobs in Chicago. One point on a whim, I was like, let's move to Boston. And so I was like looking up schools in Boston And I knew I didn't really want to go back to California, but I kind of felt like I was lacking like a passionate direction of what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until, so I like did my student teaching and like was in the classroom, was doing really well and all that. And it wasn't really until we had a guest speaker come in one of my classes who basically said what I studied at Purdue is not what I'm doing now. And that's where it kind of clicked for me where I was like, huh, maybe I don't have to do exactly this. It's related, but not the cookie cutter expectation. Yeah. And I kind of kept having this like internal struggle of both imposter syndrome, which I think is like super common, especially among our generation. And then also just kind of this 
external pressure of you need to get a job and like it needs to be this like conventional package deal and then by 25 you'll be married and by 30 like you'll have your two kids and you'll have this like little picture perfect life and I was like what is this (laughs) that's not me and so it was a little bit of an existential crisis like November of my senior year and so I like panic emailed my advisor (laughs) what do I do and she was like have you thought about grad school Of course, I had not because what I think is like an unfortunate part of education is the only real path is classroom teacher. That's what they advertise to you. But there's so many other facets of the educational world that you can be part of and still make that same level of difference. Just it won't necessarily look like what's two plus two equals four. And so... I started kind of looking at programs and she also had at the same time said, what about Peace Corps? I had like known about Peace Corps. My great uncle was a Peace Corps volunteer, but I hadn't really ever done anything with it. Just was like, cool, that's a thing that happens. Some people do that. It was over winter break going into my second semester of senior year that I applied basically on a whim and was like, you'll regret it if you don't. And that's kind of how I've gone through a lot of things (laughs) is I like peer pressure myself into it (laughs) to an extent and I'm like you don't want to be sitting there 30 years from now and being like wow what if I had done this and so I just hit apply and sent it away and a couple days later got like a you've been invited to interview and we have to like continue looking at your application, but like you would be preliminarily placed in South Africa, teaching English, interview details to follow basically. Wow. Yeah. So at the same time though, because I like a challenge, (laughs) I had been meeting with some family friends and one of them recommended I look into international education. And I think what was like initially challenging for me was these options aren't explicitly told to you when you're 17 years old and picking your major. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was like when I was four I wanted to be a shoe designer and I have no capability to do that like I by no means pursued that passion but like at some point something gets lost where like that passionate side of things is not as encouraged yeah in our society (laughs) by my parents sure but like the broader world And so I had this family friend tell me, like, you thought about international education, like, here's some master's programs. So I had applied at the time to a couple of schools and at Peace Corps. So I was kind of these two parallel tracks. Yeah. Just so happened I got into Peace Corps first and I had seven days to decide (laughs) what I wanted to do. And so I remember sitting in our sorority house with one of our friends making a pros and cons list of pros, great resume builder, cons, have to use a bucket for the bathroom, like these crazy pros, because I had seven days to make this life-altering choice, basically. I think it's so amazing. I mean, when you talk about making decisions on a whim and doing it from a place of, I don't want to regret this or approaching a choice from the standpoint of in a few years, and I look back and see that I didn't make this decision, like, how am I going to feel? I totally get that. I feel like I'm very, (laughs) very similar in that way of making decisions out of like, am I going to regret this? Or what's the cost of not doing it? 
Yeah, exactly. What made you take the leap? Like at the end of the seven days, after your pros and cons list, what really got you? I think I wanted to do what wasn't expected. And I wanted to challenge myself. I think that's at the like the bottom line of it because growing up I always like played it safe I was the girl who always wore a helmet you know like I always I followed the books I like didn't cut in line like yeah. store was closing was out of that store 15 minutes before <laughs> kind of thing yeah. it was kind of two-pronged number one was I didn't feel like I could with authority become someone in the field of international education without having actually experienced it and lived it and seen firsthand what the problems are. You can read a book about things, but it doesn't compare at all to seeing it yourself. That was the professional reason why. On the personal side, like I wanted to do something different for myself. Like I'm a pretty picky eater and challenge myself not to like all the food all the time and to get out of my comfort zone and take these challenges and turn them into something meaningful. Yeah. I don't know if I had those thoughts as intentionally when I was like 21 years old, (laughs) making this like humongous decision. But I definitely, after reflecting on like, why did I do this while I was there? Being able to really figure out, like, you did it because you wanted to challenge yourself. And that's how I do a lot of things. Like, I went to Purdue knowing nobody. And I wanted to challenge myself. I moved to New York. not I didn't know a single person. Yeah. And so when things are too easy for me, I get bored. And I don't like being bored. (laughs) So I need to be challenged in some way and figure out how to survive almost. Yeah. I think it's cool that you seek out different challenges. It's not only one type of challenge that you seek out and try and accomplish and get through. So for people who are in a situation where they're just like, I want to challenge myself or I want to get unstuck or just go down a different path, what would you say to them? I think for me, one of the biggest helpers and like levers in getting me to where I am has been just asking people to share their stories. And then from that, doing my own research and figuring out like, huh, they're like, this seems really interesting. And basically like choose your own adventure. Yeah. I take this little nugget that someone has shared with me and I'm like, that's a really interesting thing. I don't necessarily like the rest of it, but that one little strand is something that's like touching home for me. And then Googling the living daylights out of it and getting down this like weird internet rabbit hole and then like pivoting and pivoting and pivoting, knowing that it's not linear, that it's always going to be, your path is not a romantic comedy basically where like, nor do you want it to be. Like I've seen Stepford Wives, like that's horrifying. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want it to be predictable. Exactly. And I think mundanity and complacency, I am just really averse to complacency as a person. I don't know what it is, but like find other ways to make things interesting, like learn a new skill. It doesn't have to be, let's make like life altering changes every day. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, ah, watercolor seems fun. Let me try that. So, but just then applying that on scale. So you decide like, all right, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. How long was it before you left the United States? 
Oh boy. So I got into the Peace Corps. I accepted my invitation in February of 2016 and I didn't leave until July of 2016. And so between February and I'd say about mid-April, everything was conditional upon my medical clearance and my legal clearance. And so I had to like submit hard copy fingerprints to the federal government, had to go and get like a hundred bajillion shots, it felt like. (laughs) All sorts of interesting and different tests run so they could clear me for service. Then I was cleared and they basically were like, show up in Philadelphia. Wow. To catch the plane to South Africa? Yeah. So it's called staging. Every Peace Corps country does this. It's like a consolidation of all the volunteers because volunteers come from all 50 states and they're like, show up on this day, call this number, they'll arrange your travel and see you there. Bring two suitcases. You can't have any more than two. Wow. Okay. So you go to Philly. Yeah. And it was actually, it was the 4th of July. I remember this because the history nerd in me was like, cool, Philadelphia, 4th of July, like this rocks. (laughs) But then I also had this like, what have I done? (laughs) moment Because here I am now like 22 years old, sitting in a hotel room in Philadelphia with a bunch of strangers in business casual clothing that's also hand washable. Yeah. (laughs) Just a very weird three day long HR training. Wow. (laughs) I can only imagine. I mean that knowing that you're going abroad for a long period of time, that in and of itself is a challenge. But when you're preparing for duty and going to Mm -hmm. communities that need help, that's like a whole extra layer to add on to it. Yeah, and there was just basically a gigantic question mark. They don't really tell you anything (laughs) until you get there. Wow. The rationale for that makes sense because they want to know who you are as a person. They interviewed you for an hour. They read your application. They've seen who you are on paper, but they don't really know what kind of projects are you interested in doing? What kind of skills do you actually have to contribute? What's your personality like? Are you willing and able to serve without electricity? Those kinds of things during those first, I'd say about month and a half, there were like extensive interviews while we were in in South Africa and they like preliminarily will place you based on your application but then they want to get to know you so they'll switch some things around and see the status of the organization or the partner program that you're with and see safety wise is this the best fit and so that doesn't happen until they meet you in person and so I didn't know what language I was going to be learning until I got there until you got to Philly no until I got to South Africa wow Yeah. So to like run you through quickly, like how it's structured, we arrived in Philadelphia, we were there for like three days, and then we boarded a bus to take us to JFK, which is like two and a half hours away from Philadelphia. (laughs) And then we got on a plane at 11am and woke up the next day in South Africa. We're greeted like with open arms by the Peace Corps staff. And then we were taken to like a conference center where the point of that was let's make sure you all are like up to date on all your vaccines now that we have more control over it. Let's get your language groups. Let's start like easing you into this cultural adjustment kind of thing. 
from there, then we went to host families for 10 weeks. We were in what's called pre-service training. So I'm not even a volunteer yet. Wow. And I'm doing like a language and culture intensive class for like three weeks coupled with HR. Here's how you report this. Here's how you do this. Here's all this stuff. So imagine like the world's longest HR training and like that's Peace Corps. Plus it's all in a different language. Yeah. <laughs> And then from that, you're like given your site. So that's like where you're going to be living for the next two years. And then you're basically like shipped off and they're like, good luck. Wow. So set the scene when they shipped you off. Where did you go? What was the vibe of the community that you lived in? What were you there to do as a member of the Peace Corps? Yeah. So my official project is called School and Community Resource Project. That basically boils down to I was a teacher (laughs) and I taught English to grade six and life skills, which was like health mixed with PE, which you know me, that's hilarious that I was teaching PE. (laughs) (laughs) So fun though. (laughs) It was fun. It was just like, I'm unqualified for my job of memoir. (laughs) Hey, it's another challenge. Yeah. So I was doing that. I was expected to improve the literacy program at my school and in my community. And then anything else I wanted to do was like a secondary side project. So when I got there, my village was called K-Section, which that's a residual apartheid era naming system because I was living in the province of KwaZulu-Natal. There's a famous Michael Caine movie called Zulu from 1964. That's like the area's biggest like Western claim to fame. Anyway, that's like where I was living. It's called the battlefields. And so there's like big battles in the late 1800s there. But under apartheid, people were moved back to the homelands they called them and the easiest way to name things is to just letter them and number them so I was in K section so my goal was to it was pretty loose in terms of what I was expected to do but now after having studied like international development the Peace Corps is a United States government agency and so USAID which is the international development aid branch of the State Department, they pump a lot of money into the global south, which is what was formerly known as like developing countries. With that, you're kind of held to what the State Department views as effective projects. We had to do like compliance and monitor and evaluate. That's the term in the development sector. And so how many books did I order for the school? How many kids were reading them every month? And what does that look like? Where's the growth? How is this being an impactful program? Now that I've studied it, it's interesting to look back on Peace Corps because there's definitely things that I would change in terms of their development model. But me actually being there at the time was a completely different story because I didn't have access to any of that. Yeah. And just was kind of like figuring it out as I went along. My community was like 300 people. Everyone spoke Isi Zulu. And I'd say most people had basic English. I got along pretty well with everyone and there were no problems, which is good. I lived about 15 kilometers from the town, the main town. And so once a week I would go in to do my grocery shopping and catch up with the other Americans that were 
scattered around that town. It's called your shopping town. And go to the bank, go to the local KFC. Mm-hmm. That's where we would go mostly. That's just like as a quick aside, I filled out my 2016 presidential ballot at the KFC. And then I <laughs> mailed my absentee ballot back to California. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was interesting because going to a country that was so... It was post-conflict. I think a lot of people hear about South Africa and they think of Cape Town and they think of like Johannesburg and they know about apartheid, but they don't see the residual effects because Nelson Mandela came and helped everyone. Desmond Tutu solved it. Or so it seems from outsiders' perspectives. After living there, race was the first thing talked about always. And unlike in the U.S., it's kind of like a, a topic that we don't really touch upon. But in South Africa, when it's been a legalized system for over 50 years where that's your identity and that's who you are and that's how you access certain privileges that's like you very much know your position and your level of privilege and so coming into South Africa as a white woman was very interesting taught me a lot because I grew up in a very colorblind area. And so while I grew up in Northern California, which is very liberal and very diverse, there's not that much conversation, especially as compared to now. And so it kind of, that was a new challenge. So going back into that like challenge idea where I was challenging my own perceptions and my own understanding of the world, while also like, how do I take a bucket bath because I don't have running water? Yeah. (laughs) How do I cook when my electricity is going to be out because there's a storm while also still being 22 and FaceTiming friends during Thanksgiving and trying to stay in contact with people? And yeah. So there's kind of like a lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting because I could have never predicted anything. You have this idea in your head of how it's going to be. Kind of similar to when I went into college, right? I thought I was going to be doing this and then came out and had a completely different (laughs) life trajectory. And so now after Peace Corps and that like motivated me, I'm going to apply to grad school again. Even though I got in, they wouldn't let me defer, which I thought was ridiculous, but whatever. Still got my master's, so it's all good. Yeah, so it's just like kind of pivoted me into a different direction of like, wow, inequity and inequality is really prevalent, especially in education and especially when I'm teaching a curriculum that's saying use a Bunsen burner because it's written for kids in the capital, but I don't even have a whiteboard at my school. Wow. And so seeing that level of disparity kind of helped propel me into this next stage of my career. Mm -hmm. I had that foresight, I guess, of you need to have done this in order to understand what you're talking about and what you're learning yeah what was a typical day like for you oh boy so I would wake up and have rice krispies or oatmeal I actually ate so much oatmeal that I can't eat it anymore I would like pack my lunch which was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and like an apple and some peanuts and raisins very like basic kindergartner food, walk to school. And I, school started at like 7.45. I learned about halfway through my service that I was like the alarm clock for people. Oh, really? Because I lived at the back of the village. 
Oh. And so I had to walk the entire main drag down to the school, which was at the bottom. My village was a triangle, and so I would walk along the long side, not the hypotenuse, but the other side. Yeah. I would hear, oh, like, Mr. Wega's coming. Time to go to school. Wow. So they would just hear you walking. And, like, see me. Like, time to go. Yeah. I mean, that's... Not to say, like, people all had cell phones, everyone had Facebook, everyone had WhatsApp, but time is a very loose thing because there's more emphasis on togetherness than there is on punctuality. And so asking when you say, hey, like, how are you doing? Stopping and actually having that conversation, this is how I'm doing, rather than like, hey, how are you? Can you tell me this? Which is how it is in the States. And that was a shift, but now I'm actually chronically late. And before I was always early. I think that was one of my biggest takeaways coming back to the States was like, people are people. Like, ask your store clerk how they're doing. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't take any extra effort out of your day. Just have like a little conversation with them. Like, that's normal. Reframing this American view of time is money. Yeah. So you'd walk to school. So I walked to school and then we had assembly and we were a public school, but we said like the Hail Mary every single day and, or the, our father, Baba Wetu, our father in Zulu. And then we'd go to class and we had like one hour classes. So then at about like 1030 every day, we had school lunch, which was like a government issued Monday was anchovy day over rice. Each day of the week had assigned meals and you had that every single week. Every Monday was that. Every Tuesday was something else. Every Wednesday. Yeah. And that was across the province. It was really interesting because like that's not really how our schools and how our government works. It was like really interesting to be living in a pretty like socialist area mm-hmm. where you're like that's like what all their policies are rooted in. So then go to school, school would get out at like 2.45 and then on Fridays I would go into the town. I would try to hitch a ride with a teacher to drop me off at a grocery store or the KFC. Then I would come back via minibus taxi which were super shuttles or like airport vans and you would just stand on the side of the road and like flag one down and hope that it stopped wow mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and then the sun would go down at like seven so i would start i had electricity but like once the sun was down like not really supposed to go out especially if you're a woman so lots of gender norms were in play yeah i basically would like be locked in my apartment in my little house starting when it got dark until the next morning rinse and repeat same thing every day but what happened if you had to go to the bathroom i used my bucket i had a sand pail basically so the bucket slash sand pail at night and then during the day you guys would like go to the stalls outside yeah so they're like pit latrines so think about like a porta potty basically government issued porta potties wow and then when it gets full you dig another hole right next door wow and we started to like just normalize this yeah like it didn't feel weird i think part of that had to do with how we were eased into it but i mean there were definitely some things that was like this is annoying like when my cell service would go out because there was a big storm and it like knocked down the cell tower (laughs) wow yeah but otherwise like i was on instagram i was on snapchat i could facetime like for better or for worse, right? Because I wasn't fully disconnected. 
And so FOMO became a little bit real towards halfway through my service, but it becomes your new normal. It's kind of like goes into that radical acceptance idea, right? Like this is my reality. So like, we're just, how can I work within it? Yeah, for sure. What would you say inspired you most about living with the locals? I think it really was this value on humanity and collectivism and knowing that when one person got married in the community, everyone would go. You didn't have to be invited and how everyone, they would look out for each other and genuinely ask, how are you doing? How can I help? It was really neat to see that like when there was a funeral, for example, every house took a part in helping with the preparations. Wow. That became really special. It got a little frustrating when I was like, I really just want to watch TV. I don't really want to like be social right now. But it was nice too because like it was a community. And so I actually was fortunate enough to go back after I'd been home for like a year and a half. And it was like nothing had changed. And so I was just like, hey, what's up? And I'm sure they were so happy to see you. Yeah, absolutely. And it was funny, like how quickly I had come from New York, from living in Manhattan and went back to where I was. I immediately fell back in. There was no culture shock of going back, which was bizarre. It was almost there was more culture shock coming to the United States again, especially after I was there for a year and a half. What would you say was the hardest part about coming back to the U.S.? I think there were a couple hard parts. And one of them was that it's really hard to explain what it's like. And it's human nature to want to relate. Oh, I went on a mission trip once. Mm. Oh, I studied abroad. (laughs) How was your trip? Yeah, wow. Not fully grasping what it is living in and around absolute poverty and having people going hungry all around you and turning down funerals to go to other funerals. And like, those are like the darker sides of Peace Corps, right? But then you have the lighter sides of Peace Corps, which are the community atmosphere. Like people in the United States don't care, really. Like they do, I think, in small towns, but that stopping and asking someone how they are, (laughs) that's, I think, what shook me. Like when I came back, I flew into Atlanta from Johannesburg. And first of all, what a place to come back to the United States. <laughs> like, yeah, welcome back to America. You're in Atlanta. The biggest airport ever. The biggest airport, the South. <laughs> yeah. Nothing I'm used to. And it was like 7 a.m. and I needed like something to eat because I'd been traveling for like what felt like months. The only thing open is Popeyes. And I literally walk up to the counter. I was like, hi, like, good morning. How are you? And she's like, next. Oh. And I was like, oh, ouch. But then I had a classic readjustment nightmare, which was I needed a napkin and I couldn't for the life of me remember what they were called in American English. Oh, wow. In South Africa, you call them a serviette. And so I just stood there being like, can I have a, a <laughs> like, genuinely not remembering the name of it? Wow. Because I just lived there for so long. And then, so for the first, like, two months back, I, like, would say, like, oh, can you pitch it in the bin? Like, throw it away. My entire lingo had changed. It wasn't so much that I was, like, coming back speaking another language. It was more of I had normalized, let's stop at the petrol pump. Yeah. (laughs) 
or like after the second robot, which is a stoplight. I still catch myself every once in a while. Like I'll say something so people will be like, what? <laughs> but I think that was like one of the biggest things was just how much Americans rely on punctuality and like time is money. With the question of how are you doing? It's like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people just give like a split second response of like I'm good how are you and then yeah expect the other person to say I'm good both people go about their day when it's like mm-hmm. actually are you good yeah how are you really yeah and so that's actually been something interesting I found with COVID and quarantine is people have been forced to slow down and ask how are you doing because we're all in this like bizarre situation together yeah and it looks a little different person to person right you're in indianapolis i'm in new york city it's a little bit different like i'm in an apartment and you're in a house but how are you really like how are you doing and checking in on people and reconnecting with people to actually genuinely want to know because that's all we have now is time yeah grind culture is slowly fading which to me is really nice yeah but i know that it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable which I think it's good because discomfort is nice. Yeah, discomfort means you're growing in some aspects. Yeah. But, and too, like during coronavirus, I found like even just picking up the phone and calling someone versus texting. Some people have kind of like stopped reaching out because they're just like, I don't have a lot of updates because I'm not doing a lot of things. But even in that case, like you're still a human being and you're still changing on a daily basis. And it's like, I want to know how you're doing. Yeah. Like, how's the plant that you? decided to mother yeah you know like what'd you eat today there's always things but I I think people can easily fall into the trap of like Mm -hmm. oh well we're doing the same thing over and over again each day theoretically but we aren't we're doing different things yeah and I think part of that is because we were kind of thrown into the situation yeah it was like one day we could go out and the next day they were like absolutely not (laughs) right now I need to learn how to reframe what I'm doing and so connecting that back into Peace Corps like I have found quarantine fine yeah I'm thriving actually to be honest Slash maybe my lifestyle was like quarantine previously. And so there hasn't been that many like marked changes. Yeah. (laughs) But in that I can absolutely empathize with people who are not, who are so uncomfortable by the fact that like we can't go out to a bar on a Friday night anymore. Yeah. You just have to reframe your idea of fun. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's trying a new recipe or resurrecting my family's we from when we were like yeah. in middle school. You told me one time a few months ago that you were taking a virtual tour of a museum. Oh yeah. Like, what museum was that? <laughs> yeah, it was the Dorsey. I went to Paris for the day. I did like Google Earth Street View. It was like, all right, here I am. That's so cool. And that museum is so fantastic. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite museum in the world. So I was very happy. And like, that's the thing too, is just adapting. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, cool, I can go to Paris from my couch. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's just so interesting to see just how people react to situations. I mean, I definitely, I'm not this like calm, cool, collected. Let's see where life takes me. No, I will have my freak out. I have my existential crises constantly, you know, but it's all about then like pulling back and then reframing and being like, okay, now what? Let's make a plan. And maybe my plan is to have no plans for the day. 
Yeah. And so I think that is how I've been handling COVID is like drawing on those things that I taught myself, forcibly taught myself in Peace Corps. Like I didn't have a choice. That's how I had to survive. Yeah. So you got back to Atlanta from Peace Corps. Yes. And then you moved to New York a little bit after living at home. Yeah. Like Atlanta was my connection, but it was just like a very bizarre place to have a layover. (laughs) And then I was living with my parents for like, I want to say eight months. What a weird thing to walk into to an empty nester's home where there was like more kinds of cheese than I could count in their fridge because I guess that's what they do now is they have wine and cheese every night because <laughs> all their kids have moved out. So then I had already applied to grad school while I was still in Peace Corps and then I got in and moved to New York where I got my master's in international education development from Columbia with my concentration in policy and planning and that's a very fancy way of saying like writing curriculum and learning how to make strategic plans for educational organizations, schools, system-wide change, focusing on kind of bigger picture things. How do we develop a person and how do we quantify a very qualitative idea, right? With your return on investment in education is 20 years out. From what you're learning in math class as a five-year-old, you don't see that necessarily that day. The same way like in tech or advertising or something, right? You can see the amount of clicks your ad is getting. Right. Immediately you can kind of gauge how well you're doing but in education it's much more like I guess we'll see (laughs) yeah fingers crossed yeah like just really hedging your bets and like let's hope this works yeah then you pivot later so figuring out like how do you make sustainable quality education in an ever-changing world and that's really what my focus was in grad school and still drawing upon this equity lens of how do I provide equitable education in high and low resourced areas what does that look like how do you make it cheap so that kids aren't excluded because of fees these are the kinds of things I grapple with on a daily basis so I think that's so interesting and very important but you graduated from grad school during COVID So tell us about that and tell us about how you figured out what was next. Oh my gosh. So insert yet another existential crisis followed by radical acceptance. (laughs) So I wrapped up my master's backing up a little bit, COVID hit in March. And at the end of March, things in New York were looking pretty scary and pretty difficult to live in an apartment that you didn't have a washer dryer and that you had to walk to get all your groceries and that nobody really knew what was going on and how long it would be like this. And so I was very lucky to be able to go back to California and basically go to my parents' house and finish out my semester with a washer dryer (laughs) and a car and like be able to be a little bit safer. Not everyone had that experience, which I can't even imagine and I consider myself very lucky. But yeah, so I went back and we had virtual graduation. It was over Zoom. We projected it on my TV in my house. Had like a little Zoom call with friends and family afterwards. Had a little cookout, popped some champagne, tried to do it the way I wanted, (laughs) the way I needed to have it feel real. There's something very strange about how you feel like you've worked so hard and then have that feel like you've worked for nothing because you're not standing in a polyester gown in the sunlight getting a piece of paper 
there's something very strange about how we've made that act itself so important, how it marks a milestone, when in fact, I celebrated it at home. It just didn't feel real. Yeah. It didn't feel like I had actually done it. It had this level of like surreal, not like I had actually just written a 30-page thesis and graduated from Columbia. Yeah, I mean, graduation in and of itself is really interesting because like we've already done all the work to get to graduation. And then yeah, the fact that in our minds and kind of society tells us that we need this polyester gown and paper to eliminate any sort yeah. of imposter syndrome or... Yeah. And to, to formalize it and to make it be the real deal when in fact, who used to say having cupcakes in my backyard isn't the real deal. It's actually more intimate and more person to person. But yeah, so then I was unemployed. I graduated without a job and I was 26 years old, kicked off my parents' health insurance during a global pandemic, unemployed and had a master's from an Ivy League institution in nothing really practical. <laughs> <laughs> and was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had fully anticipated I was going to be working at Insert Internal International Rescue Committee or Oxfam or any of these like huge organizations. And I was like, I'm going to change the world. Instead, I was lying on my parents' couch applying for jobs like 20 a day. I think I applied for over 100 jobs actually. And I got three interviews. So talk yeah. about a knock to your confidence and feelings of capability, which a lot of it has to do with the global pandemic. I know that, but that's hard in the moment, yeah. not take it personally. And so just being like, well, this is what we're doing. Like, we're going to figure something out. And so I did. I found a school in my area that I could do a short-term consultancy with in order to feel financially stable and secure. And then while I started that, I had applied for a job, a teaching job here in New York, and I heard back and I got the job. So now I'm teaching at a private school on the Upper West Side, which was absolutely not what I saw myself doing after graduation. But I have some plans brewing on how I can pivot this next thing into a little culmination of all my talents. So stay tuned on that. <laughs> I remember we talked on the phone before you made the decision to take this teaching job or right around that time. And I just remember you saying like, I'm practicing radical acceptance and I'm just going to go for it. And I think that's so cool. I mean, there's so many mm -hmm. constraints in the world right now. And the fact that you're like, okay, well, this is the path that's mm -hmm. available to me right now. So let's make the most of it. Yeah. There's something to be said about reflecting on the state of the world and being like, wow, this isn't very fun. <laughs> I don't like yeah. paying bills. Like I wake up every day and work for what? Like so I can afford to have a place to live. That's kind of insane if you think about it. Then taking those head in the clouds like thoughts and being like, well, I have to do this right now. So you know what? We're just going to compartmentalize what we're thinking about. And this is what I'm doing now. And wow, I'm so lucky. Trying best as possible not to dwell on the bad parts of things, even though I think there's importance in making space for bad parts. And not just sugarcoating and not being like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like, no, it's not fine. But how it's are we going to solve it? Yeah, trying to find a solution and while also recognizing mm -hmm. how lucky you are. I saw a term the other day that was called toxic positivity. 
And I think that's a pretty new concept. I don't think a lot of people consider the weight the toxic positivity can play, but like it does. It's like if you have one of the, like a yeah. pendulum, right? And you swing it and it goes all the way to one side, what's going to happen at the other side is it's going to pull back and it's going to be even worse. And so if you're just like chilling in this overly positive, sunshiny Pollyanna, the backlash from that is going to be like, I don't even know. And so knowing that it's always a pendulum and there will be good days and bad days and let's pivot and let's figure out how we can solve things. Accepting where you're at and knowing it's not linear and it's constantly changing. Yeah, and it shouldn't be linear. I think we should strive for it not to be linear. It's like when people always were like, my peak of like, and no offense to anyone who's like this, but peaking in college, I never want to peak. My goal is to never peak. Yeah. Or if I do peak, like peak when I'm 70. Yeah. Like I'm on a constant upward trajectory of incredibleness. Like I never want to be forlornly being like, oh, the good old days. Like, yeah, college was fun. You can confirm <laughs> like we had great times but was that the peak like god I sure hope not no throughout the years as you've been going down your journey who or what do you look to for inspiration Ooh, I think it's not like a one particular person it's just kind of this like notion of all of these really strong women that you see like Ruth Bader Ginsburg Michelle Obama like my mom <laughs> like it's just kind of this like collective idea of people who have faced adversity but still overcame also I am a very like strong feminist and I think listening to women is like really important especially now that I'm thinking about and saying it out loud all of these little like pieces of advice I've shared all came from really great women yeah I remember this one lady once told me she was like cherish the challenges that's what she said she wrote that in an email to me and I like met her on like a cruise (laughs) she was like 80 year old woman who's like I think her husband was a holocaust survivor fascinating woman yeah she told me cherish the challenges and that like really stuck with me I love that the challenges are what make us go forward. Yeah. Tell everyone where they can connect with you. I think the best way to connect with me is email. Megan.e.ricks at gmail.com. We'll also put your email in the notes. Yeah. And thanks for having me. This is so fun. Yes, this is so fun. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Take care and we'll be back next week. <laughs>